Dismantling the harmful beliefs we have about ourselves can be hard to do on our own. It's easier to do it with someone or some people who are also committed to becoming better humans. I'm Aluk Edwardson, and this is the Creative Decolonization Podcast. Our first podcast guests have been in partnership as a couple for over a decade, building wellness capacities for themselves and their communities. It's easy to make the unfamiliar strange. If you feel yourself judging or feeling anything unhelpful, I invite you to try this very short meditation with me. Take some deep breaths, releasing any tension you may feel in your body with your exhale. Breathing in and releasing breath and tension. Breathing in and releasing breath and tension. On your next exhale, say this out loud. Difference in someone else does not threaten who I am. Standing stronger together. Inhale and exhale. Repeating this mantra as many times as you like. Difference in someone else does not threaten who I am. Standing stronger together. If you're interested in exploring what culture is, the self, wellness, and your own cultural strengths, join us for a free workshop this Sunday, October 8th, from 5 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Zoom. The sign-up link is in the notes. Also in the notes are links to explore more of the concepts we discuss. Meet Stas Schmite and Leander Roth, friends of mine, as we explore concepts of time, family, partnership, and hope that support decolonized understandings. You know, I'd love for you guys to share a little bit about who you are with our audience so that they can get to know you a little bit. You can share anything about yourself that you'd like, your name, your preferred name, where you call home or where you are now. You don't have to share a location. I understand that sharing location in a virtual space can feel dangerous. You can also just share what decolonization means to you, what colonization means to you. Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting us. My name is Leander. I go by he or they pronouns. My name is Stas, and I go by they, them pronouns. And the two of us are the founders of Spring Up and Blue Light Academy, which is a worker co-op that collaborates virtually and holds space for people and organizations to live into their values, to practice generative conflict, and to yeah, learn together about what it means to develop community-based solutions to gender-based violence. And as people... We have been together as a couple for 11 years now. We've been co-running this organization for 10 of those years. Let's see. I think another important thing to share, especially when I'm thinking about the lens of colonization, is I was born in Italy, and I was born to an Italian and African-American mixed family. And I think a lot about how colonization is something that has been happening for a very long time in a lot of different structures. And I really appreciated when listening to the first podcast episode about how there has been cultural exchange and mixing and that 
the idea of colonization is so much more about erasure and about domination over a way of being rather than a like mutual exchange and growing and the ability to maintain your way of life while being in relationship with others. That's something that I think a lot about as a mixed person. I think a lot about as someone who's moved a lot in my life is how can I respect what's already there when I come into a place and how can I be aware of the different lineages that make up who I am while also making something new and becoming my own self, the ocean of me, as you would say, right? So I think that that's, that's a lot of what I've been thinking about coming into this conversation. Yeah, I think that's really relevant to the conversations people have about who they are and what's important to them and whether their background and where they come from matters or it doesn't, you know. I think that's a fantastic place to start. Leander, you know, thinking about your cultural background and, you know, we identify culture as a lot more than race, right? Culture has to do with what you believe and what you value. Is there anything that you'd like to share about how you see yourself today or in the past or both? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, So I grew up in Minnesota and very much, I would say, in a norm of settlerhood and just kind of having, you know, so many of the colonized aspects of people kind of acknowledging, but also putting the indigenous present in the past. Yeah, I almost had to like leave Minnesota and be exposed to other perspectives to be able to perceive that. And then to realize just how many very active Indigenous communities there are in Minnesota, and that that was something that I was just coexisting with, or even, you know, doing things that were Indigenous practices like canoeing, but disconnected from that culture and present. And so Minnesota being Anishinaabe and Cheyenne and Dakota territory, I think that going to college, which is where we met, and meeting people with so many different backgrounds did cause me to like, yeah, just be able to realize that, you know, I am a person who does also have a a background in culture. And so my ancestors were from Norway and Germany and realizing how that kind of is also what drew them to Minnesota. Those like Northern outdoor activity, loving ways of being. And so, yeah, I definitely grew up being outdoors a lot. I think that's a big part of my culture. And then also realizing how Christianity has been such a big part of colonization for my people and how that led to a lot of, you know, I would say widely accepted sexism and homophobia, which then is what led me to leave there. So I definitely, yeah, see that in my culture. And then being with Stas for so many years, we've lived in Italy together. We've lived with their Black family in the United States together. And that definitely has become a part of my my culture and my experience as well. Yeah, I think that sometimes it feels easier to speak to culture through examples of what the culture feels like, right? And I think that when I look at you and your family, it's like a culture of wearing sweaters and freezing weather (laughs) rather than thick jackets, right? And hearing stories about ancestors who walk on glaciers barefoot. And I noticed that because that is not my culture. (laughs) 
And it's a distinction that I feel in my body in a very active sense over the years of our time together. And I think that for me, the some really important things are being in a culture of rosemary, which is what we just smelled at the beginning of this. I think a lot about smells and something that's been powerful for me in connecting with my family is the way that Italy becomes so conflated with Rome and the Roman Empire and that my ancestors were Eritrean, which were enemies of the Romans who were then colonized by Rome. And I think you mean Etruscan. Etruscan, yes. sorry. Yes, Eritrean's actually on my mom's side. Yeah. <laughs> Etruscan is on my father's side. And like some of the ancestral practices that I still feel so connected to that feel almost not Italian, but because they're Etruscan and that that's a culture that's been really erased in a lot of ways. And my grandfather dedicated a lot of his life to naming things that had been labeled as Roman in history books and labeling the way that those were actually Etruscan objects or practices or cultural things in a world atlas that he created. And so I think that's definitely something that I think a lot about is misattribution of things and the ways that we can even lose track of things that feel authentic to us through lineages of naming that happen. Yeah. And so I think you can even hear in how we answered that, that partnership and having mixed family and witnessing each other's experience and culture is also a powerful way of realizing the things that became implicit or were just the water that you were swimming in as a younger person. And I think a big way that both of us have sought out to practice decolonization in our own lives is to strive for collectivity and to kind of dismantle this idea of the individual moving through capitalism on their own. Yeah, you know, I'm hearing in both of your histories at different periods in time, your recognition of how the cultures, some of the cultures that you come from have been colonized, both in Italy and in some of the Norwegian and German heritage through Christianity in different ways. And so it's interesting to me how at different ages we become a part of this awareness and what we choose to do with that. It sounds like you're going in this direction anyway, but how you guys came together in working on decolonizing yourselves and how you can find community and culture and partnership in moving away from what you know. I think a big part of it is also a willingness to unlearn and detach from things that you thought you knew. I think that for me, a big part of what has driven me to want to understand more of this is really trying to trace more of my Black and African-American lineage and feeling the loss of information there and the active erasure. Where were my people from? What were we doing? How did we get to this place? And I think it's been interesting because I've seen people in my family really strive to create meaning, sometimes in ways that don't, that weren't true. You know, I remember growing up with this belief that my family would say, you know, we're part Cherokee. You know, maybe part of that is true, maybe it's not, but I think it's also a very active narrative in Black American culture to claim indigeneity without necessarily being in relationship with those cultures actively. And I think that that's something that as I started to say, okay, well, I'd like to understand where this comes from. I'd like to understand, am I this? What does that mean? I've come to be like, okay, I think that it's been important to me to learn about some of the practices of solidarity between Black people and Indigenous folks in the U.S. And growing up in Miami, a lot of how I learned about that was in the creation of the Seminole group and like how that included active raids of freeing enslaved people to join in the community. And I think that 
what's been helpful is being able to identify with larger narratives without necessarily claiming that as a personal identity and being able to let go of certain things and then say, okay, maybe part of the reason why I'm so attached to unearthing this Black history is also a distancing from the Italian side and the white side and like, oh, I'm not like them. And that opened up a whole process of trying to understand more of that history and actually come closer to it rather than distance and find meaning in it. And I think that I wouldn't have necessarily had the courage to actually keep asking questions and dig deeper, especially when I was getting answers that I didn't like if I wasn't doing it in partnership with Lee and uncovering that together and understanding more that when you do ancestral work, you're not just going to find pretty things. You're going to find things that need tending to and healing and you'll need the space to work on that and not just find fun facts to share with friends, but instead things that really uncover some of what your soul is asking you to do and some of the pains that you carry and the closure that sometimes you need to have around things that folks did or things that folks claimed that weren't theirs and that it's not just about the work of connecting with people who we're on the receiving end of colonization, but also really coming to terms with the way that your lineage is also participated in colonizing processes. And I think it's a lot easier to do that when you're doing it in community and in partnership with someone else who's willing to do that work as well. Yeah, you know, I think there's something really powerful in coming together to question and I think there are more people than not who want to find that space to be able to face those pains like you talked about. There are a lot of people that get afraid, they get scared to face the pains because they think that's all there is, right? You know, I myself, I have blood of colonizers and people who have been colonized. But even saying that right now, I recognize that the colonizers were the first to be colonized, right? That's something a lot of people teach. And so just like we've talked about before on the episodes, blood is blood is blood. And we all have historical trauma in our blood. And so thinking about that, I want to give space for everyone to share their experiences if they want to. I have some interesting experiences with Christianity myself. I consider myself a Christian as well as a Buddhist and a traditional spiritualist, which in my world view and experience work really well. You know, I, I think it's interesting thinking about the role that Christianity has played or the role that religion has played, whether it's Christianity or something else, and how it's hard to untangle what is from religion and what is from family. And I think that's an interesting conversation when working in partnership with someone, someone that you love and are sharing your life with, because ultimately you are recreating an understanding of family, which comes from your cultural upbringing. Yet there are things that you don't want to include, right? And so having that open relationship with one another to be able to talk about the pains, but also talk about the evolution of self and community, right? It seems like you guys do that a lot. There's a lot of that kind of conversation in your work. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. You know, so the two of us are very connected in our process. And then in the collective that we founded, there are 10 of us, right? All of whom have different cultural backgrounds, different migration experiences, different experiences of colonizing and being colonized. And so I don't want to say this in a utopian way, because it's certainly like, you know, work collaborations are not the primary way to connect with people. And also that collaboration can be so intimate. 
right? Especially when in our case, the collaboration is around holding processes for individuals and groups to live more fully into their values. And so doing that work in a multicultural space, I think is one of the most profound practices around that collectivity that we have now. And people bringing their different backgrounds and experiences and perspectives and knowing that we all do share so many values. Yeah, that I, that feels like a very special process and one that capitalism and approaching the economy in such an individualist competitive way means that many people don't find fulfillment in their work in that way. And so I feel very fortunate to have that. I think it's also that we founded this organization with our third co-founder, who has been my good friend since I was three years old, and who I would absolutely say is my family. And I know that they feel the same about us. And we went to your workshop this weekend, and a big takeaway that I had was just how much my culture is tied to queer culture and just how much the idea of chosen family and not being so bound by the nuclear family or by blood and how you define your kinship is such a core queer framework. And that when we think about our team as well, there is a way in which we're choosing to bring economic relationships outside of the nuclear family. I feel like a lot of times the only place that you can have open conversations or not or wield power through money is in the nuclear family. And I think having open conversations about money, about mutual aid, about exchange, about survival and thriving, about how we plan for our lives longer term, about how we resource ourselves and feel a sense of abundance outside of the family is a really core thing. And I think that with what you were talking about before and what I was sharing before about grappling with harm and grappling with the beauty and joy that comes out of ancestral work, the incredible practices and recipes and just beautiful, beautiful stories. I feel like I live in a world of the currency of stories. I just love stories so much. And I think of that as almost the primary mode of exchange that I have in the world. And I think that the incredible stories that I've been able to learn through doing that work have just strengthened my life so much and have made so much of it worth it. But I think that part of why I've been able to do this work in addition to being in this partnership is because of the kind of work that we do. You know, a lot of what we do is about grappling with harm. And that came out of doing work around gender-based violence and sexual assault and intimate partner violence. And I think that the really deep belief that transformation is possible, that it's possible to have experienced or perpetuated even very serious harms and learn and grow through that and to see conflict as a source of evolution and, and strengthened relationships and not just as a destructive force and being someone who holds space for that every day. Every day I hold conversations with people where they learn through conflict and where they grow through unpacking harm that they experienced and committed. And seeing that in real time happen really contributes to a sense of hopefulness and the belief that we can face these previous patterns and find healing and growth through them because I see that all the time. What you're saying here, holding the space for radical transformation of pain through self and community work is like at the heart of decolonizing, right? 
thinking about how all aspects of life are being colonized. One of the things that you most definitely colonize first, if you're going to want to enslave or overpower a community, is their sense of hope which you never can fully extinguish. But what are one of the ways you stop them from doing things like the Pride Festival, like I talk about in a YouTube video, I think I shared with you guys. And so I really like this idea that you're holding space for literally that transformation to be able to see hope. You know, thinking about that, holding the transformative space, like if you think about what decolonization is from a creative decolonization standpoint, it's decolonization is an education and practice focused on reuniting the self and community with holistic self-empowering practices and opportunities to heal. And so I'm just really excited to hear in your words, the meaning and value you attribute to the work that I've known about for a long time now. It's surprising to me how many people are involved in decolonization work and don't know it. Yet you, we're so aware of colonization in the world and of decolonization. And there's so many questions around what is it and how do I do it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we live in Colorado. And so as we've been here for, for longer, we have so many opportunities also to learn and to build connections with youth people here and have been connecting with more indigenous coalitions against gender-based violence. And so that's something that we, yeah, don't want to rush or like feel pressured into, but that it's just nice to like feel unfolding as we settle into to having been here for longer. And then something that I also wanted to bring up, particularly in these conversations about how we sustain ourselves and how we relate to each other. I think one of the biggest practices that we've worked really hard to develop and try to share with others is decolonizing our relationship to time. Mm -hmm. And I think that is something that, yeah, really does put us at odds with other people that are living more in the typical work, nine to five. I don't even want to say typical work week, right? Because that strengthens it as, as a norm. This idea that productive work is separate from care labor, is separate from healing and creative labor, and that that should all happen like on the weekends or at night, or, you know, you can only connect with yourself and your family when you're allowed to. And so, you know, coming out of trauma that we both experienced as young people, realizing that we needed to prioritize healing and that we were profoundly committed to our creative practices, which I know is something that we share with you, that is why we started our own organization. It's not because we love work and just want to work all the time, which, you know, often is what happens in entrepreneurship, but because we wanted to be able to set up our own terms and negotiate those of how we relate to time and money and exchange, and also to be able to really value and prioritize care and creative labor and to make the space to do this sort of family healing that you've been talking about. And I think that if we had out of college gone down a more, let's say, conformist or colonized work path, I don't think any of that, mm -hmm. maybe some of it, right? It would have looked differently. But I think that's also a large commitment that has enabled us to do this. And I definitely see us working to extend that to other people. And just this idea of do you have to work 40 hours in an employment structure to meet your basic needs or what structures of kinship or cohabitation or values-based or creative work can allow you to meet your needs, I think are things that we're both very passionate about. And that's been a large part of our personal decolonization processes as well, I would say, and is a large aspect too of like what, you know, can cause friction because people don't sometimes understand 
I think that it, it connects to something that we were talking about before this call and something that I've mentioned before of a misattribution of things or like a claiming something that's not yours to claim. And I think that something that I've been afraid of in claiming my work as decolonizing is in what ways is that tangibly related to the active settler colonization of the land that I am living on. That's something that I remember so clearly around the time that I first met you, I was at a conference in college and I went to my first workshop around colonization and decolonization. And I just, I had this really deep embodied sense that I just couldn't believe that I had it fully digested the idea that colonization was in the past. I just like realized in the middle of this workshop, and I remember I was crying so hard because I was like, how could I have so fully believed that colonization was over? And I think that that was such a before and after moment for me of before that workshop and afterwards when I started just seeing all of the cues around me of just things that I think are also very strategic moves, right? Of naming places and streets and buildings after indigenous groups as though that's the only thing that can be called that instead of people. And just ways that I had not realized that this was actively happening in an ongoing way and that I think I had heard so much the way that as an immigrant, as someone who came from another country, as someone who was forcefully, my ancestors were forcefully brought to this country, kind of this like rejection and distancing of like, well, we can't be part of the settler project because we were brought here or, you know, we were fleeing something else. And that's why we deserve access to this land. And I think that realizing the depth to which I had digested that and believed that to be true has made me feel so hesitant to claim that I'm actively a part of moving away from that without having very tangible examples that result in a shift in the lived experience of the people who are from the land that I'm actually on, you know? And I think that's something that makes me, yeah, just kind of unsure of how to claim that language and how to relate to that language, where I think that there's a part of me that's like, we should all be doing decolonizing work. We should all find the healing work that we do as connected to decolonization so that it's always in the room. And I don't want to claim that as what I'm doing if it doesn't have tangible material impacts in the land that I'm actively a settler on. I resonate with that a lot. Just earlier this week, I had something come up where somebody expected something that would be done on a different time scale than, than was my time scale. It was a personal engagement. So it, it crosses professional, personal, our relationships with our families, our relationships with people in our lives that we, we care about. So I, I think you hit the nail on the head with looking at time and money and how closely they're intertwined in our lives. Care time is not considered payable time, like you mentioned, but it's not self-time. What is it? And it's only through those rigid understandings of time that we have that issue. And so I would love to hear from you guys how you went about decolonizing your relationship with time. What, what are some, what are a few takeaways? Like if you were to share. Mm. I yeah. think one thing that I want to name is that when we're talking about time and money, a lot of what that's supposed to be a metaphor for is value, is I put time towards something because I value it. It's like what I feel, or it, it should be completed within this amount of time. feels like it's connected to a value statement. And the same thing with money of this 
product or this meeting or this amount of time is worth this amount of money. And so I think if time and money are metaphors for value, I start thinking about, well, what else do I value? And how can I think about organizing my life based on what I value rather than based on time and money? And I talked earlier about how I value stories. And I think a lot about the exchange of stories. And I I think about what storytelling practices feel extractive and what storytelling practices feel reciprocal. And sometimes money in exchange for stories can still feel extractive because it doesn't feel like it's actually matched with the value. And so I think like getting to the what's beneath, what is it that we value is something that's been really important to me. And then also having some sense of awareness that I do still need to translate into how some other people operate and creating boundaries around how and when I'm willing to be in that mode of translation when I'm not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what we're doing this year, which has been really fulfilling, is to only take meetings two days of the week. And so that doesn't mean we're not working on other days, but it means that it's more open-ended. That can be put towards creative work, or that can be put towards doing the maintenance work that you need to do as a person to maintain your life. And just that amount of flexibility has been something that I really appreciate. I think another guiding principle would be seasonality. And I think that you don't need to be self-employed or have a gig schedule to be able to incorporate seasonality. I think that that can show up in different ways, whether it's having a practice that you do before or after work based on the different seasons, or, you know, we find ourselves staying in more at certain times or pursuing community and connection more at other times. And so thinking about living more seasonally, which was, you know, the focus of your your workshop over the weekend as well, I think is an excellent guiding principle that feels like it invites you to be more in tune with nature. And then I don't personally experience this, but I would imagine I've, I've heard from other people that it causes them to realize how constructed it is that you would need to be in a certain building from nine to five when the sun comes up at different times, the sun goes down at different times, like everything else is in a different rhythm. And so the constructed or colonized nature of you have to do this at this time every day forever, you know, just then shows up as more of a construct if you are more attuned to to seasonality. And for us, I think is more extreme, but we do take off about a month and a half from certain types of labor in the winter. So that would be doing that in the extreme. And then I think in a more moderate version, you could just rest a little bit more. I don't even know if that's extreme because I do the same thing, you know? Actually, I mean, like, it just seems like an animal thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Like, just animals do that. You know, bugs freeze. They literally freeze. (laughs) They do not move. No, but something I often think about, I don't know why. I think about how life was before the advent of electricity and after, after the sunset, people did not do things. How quickly it probably was. I haven't looked into the research where people were not doing anything after six o'clock in the winter five o'clock in some places, and then how many generations it took for them to be doing stuff till 10. And so we think about how quickly in our lives something can become a norm, like we talked about this weekend, and how our norms then become behaviors that can support what we want in terms of wellness, or maybe not, right? I'm very similar when it comes to time. And I think for me, being outside, even during the cold months, which is a value that is tantamount to getting like a weekly paycheck. 
because of how I have become mindful of how it impacted my life, right? I was like, if I do this like three times a week, then I get more done. But knowing that it's different for everybody, right? Like, I think that's a key part of it is because sometimes you're out there and people say, you need to do X, Y, and Z because X, Y, and Z worked for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that we talk about that a lot because we talk about what do you want to feel abundant in? And there might be a sense that we make less money than other people, but we have such an abundance of time and that feels like such a richness to have in life, you know? And it's really about that value, right? That time and money is a metaphor for value. And I think that I don't know. I feel like this conversation feels very aligned with what we've been talking about and thinking about in our lives. So I appreciate the space as well as speaking to someone who maybe has some more similar patterns to us, which is great. And also the way that where you are in the world really impacts your relationship with time. And I feel like that's also this idea that working from home, we work from home and we work with a lot of people who work from home or who used to work in an office and then started working from home. And with what you were talking about with electricity, I was thinking about how folks said, well, now that I can work from home, I need to be in meetings until midnight. And we worked with this one client that was like, I remember they put this meeting on our calendar. We were helping them with a project and they called it a sprint and it was a 16 hour meeting on the calendar. It's like, what does that even mean? Like, how, how, did, how does that function? And this person was like, well, you know, we can take a break so I can put the kids to bed and then we can finish up and then we can close at 2 a.m. And I was like, how would you even conceive of saying that to me? Um, <laughs> including if we were going into an office, I feel like there would be a different sense of how to relate to time where people will feel like, you know, now that I have all my things on my email and my email is on my phone, then I'm always on my email. Mm -hmm. And I think when people know that we work completely from home, there's a sense of like, well, if your work is in your home, how do you have a sense of separation from it? Isn't it just in every part of your life? And I think that you have to still put the same sorts of like structures in place. At least that's how I feel, right? Like we do our work in certain areas of the home and we still create end times. And just because the work is coming out of the house doesn't mean that it's forever work all the time in my bed, yeah. you know? And I think that there's this thing that Autumn Megan Brown said, I feel like it was in a, a recording that isn't public, so I'm not sure exactly how to quote it, but I just feel like it was such a transformative idea. And Autumn Brown, she has a podcast, End of the World podcast, where she works with Aorta, which is where I learned about this was through the Tidelines cohort that they run every year. And she said this thing that really stuck with me that was, I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember the exact words, but it was generally this idea that in a society or a culture, let's say, where people believe that the body is the boundary, that like you believe in individuals and you believe that your skin and, and, and your literal body is the boundary between you and others, there's less intention and work in cultivating spiritual boundaries. Whereas if you believe that we are all connected beyond our bodies, that our spirits are always connecting with one another, then you realize that you need to be intentional with how you set boundaries beyond your literal body and space. And that idea just really stuck with me because I think that how I relate to boundaries, how I relate to what I say yes and no about, how do I, how I relate to capacity, right? Capacity is what I'm willing to, new, to do, not what I technically could do, you know? And I think that feels so intuitive because of my spiritual practice. Whereas I, I have seen that folks who 
have less of a spiritual orientation to the world, it feels like boundaries are so obvious and so intuitive in the structure that there's less energy and thought put into the way that you design them in your life and your your time and your relationships and things. And that's just something that's really, really stuck with me. In a very literal individualist interpretation of time and space, the body is the boundary, whereas in a spiritual sense, you need to create the boundaries beyond the literal body. You know, just the way that I wanted to wrap that up is that is a learned experience, right? We are taught to be aware of those things or we are not. And it's also a preference. You know, some people don't want to be aware of those things. But the challenge in that is if you're not aware of those things, then it really puts the onus on the people who are aware of those things to mitigate it and to deal with that. And so it's a challenging reality. You know, in closing, faith and hope in something is one of the most powerful seasonal tools we have in maintaining wellness in today's world. I see the effects of colonization of people, land, animals, even space, and sometimes it makes me sad or angry. It's in these moments that faith and hope in something or someone or some idea brings me light. So my question to you is, what brings you light in this sometimes often dark world? I really love this question. It feels connected to why we called our academy Blue Light Academy of the Liberatory Arts. I think that something that brings me light is how deeply I believe in transformation and how deeply I believe that transformation is just a core part of life. I think a lot about Octavia Butler's kind of framing that God is change. And I love looking at the change and transformation that I see in nature. And I love noticing the way that I see that in myself and in other people, because there's so much possibility in that. There's an unlimitedness. Uh, there's, I loved that in the first episode, you were talking about zero and infinity. I was always so passionate about number theory with my family. And I think that that idea of the infinite is so abstract and yet it's so present every time there's a transformation and just celebrating the ways that I evolve every day as a locus of possibility for the future, I think keeps me in the light. I just feel so blessed and fortunate to be able to interact with the outdoors and the land. And I think that is a large impetus also of our commitment to decolonization is loving to travel and explore and wanting to understand the histories and the the cultural meanings of the land that we're visiting and just being very yeah grateful that even you know as the world is changing with climate change i know a few weekends ago we went on a queer camping trip to this area that had had a big wildfire last year and someone was like oh that area is all all burnt like i don't really want to go it's not going to be super nice and we went and we were just it was so silly we had all these inflatable tubes and like six dogs and we were like we're gonna get out on the lake with all these dogs and yes there was all this wildfire damage around but we were just so happy to be out in nature and feeling the seasons change and you know some of those more mountainous environments in this area definitely like have some of the same trees and pine forest energy as the parts of minnesota where i grew up and so yeah i think just being able to be in nature with people and with our dog just feels like such a 
such a blessing and such a reminder of what it means to be alive and then definitely invites this connection to, you know, what did the Ute people, what do the Ute people know about what it means to live sustainably and cyclically and seasonally on this land? And like, I think that connection to the land and to, you know, what are today national parks really does also just invite like, who was here? Like this land feels so significant and meaningful. And to us, that's definitely an invitation into a decolonization practice of learning and, you know, seeing how, how, how do we fit into that, that narrative? Both of your answers resonate, you know, the power transformation and our connection to nature. And there's so much we can learn from the people who stewarded the land before us, but also, you know, going way back in time because all land was different. We forget that land has moved around. And I remind people that's also an example of transformation, isn't it? Think about how the land is transformed. It's just fantastic on a Prime video if you want to check it out. It's called The Journey of the Continents. There's an area sort of near us called Unaweep that allegedly is the oldest piece of the North American continent. Wow, that's awesome. Sacred stuff. I love thinking about how the land was connected, including with like what I'm passionate about is mushrooms and fungi and some of the same mushrooms from the Alps, where I'm from in Italy, are here. And it's just so interesting to think about how the spores transfer and how all of us breathe in at least 10 spores every time we breathe in. Talk about exchange and transformation. Oh, I just love those giant ancient beings. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to learn more about these mushrooms. Well, thank you guys for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's It's been a really wonderful hour here talking to you guys and learning learning more. So I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us. And it's been such a joy to to reconnect and to, to learn from you recently. We hope you enjoyed this conversation between friends and that in listening to others' experiences, you learned something or many things about yourself. Until next time, with kindness.